The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Zainab Salbi, was named one of People Magazine's 25 Women Changing the World, one of Foreign Policy Magazine's 100 Leading Global Thinkers, and one of Fast Company Magazine's 100 Most Creative People in Business. She's the founder of Women for Women International, a grassroots humanitarian and development organization dedicated to serving women survivors of wars. She founded the uh, Nida'a Show, if I'm pronouncing that right, a groundbreaking talk show dedicated to addressing and inspiring women in the Arab world, and the Zainab Salbi Project, where she travels the world shedding light on global issues through the incredible personal stories of people who are struggling, surviving, and even thriving in a sea of conflict. Zainab is the author of several books, including the national bestseller Between Two Worlds, Escape from Tyranny, Growing Up in the Shadow of Saddam, and her newest book is Freedom is an Inside Job, Owning Our Darkness and Our Light to Heal Ourselves and the World. An excerpt from the new book and an interview with her appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Zainab Salbi, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you very much. Looking forward. Yes, me too. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I absolutely love the book. I'm a little overwhelmed. 25 women changing the world, 100 leading global thinkers. I'm I'm not on any list that I know of. <laughs> I mean, I How lucky. Yeah, I mean, maybe my mother has a list, you know, and she loves me more than my sister. But that's the only list I can think of that that I might at least at least I'd be on the list of the top two children my mother loves. That would beautiful. <laughs> that may be the best I can do. But you have done an amazing amount of, of really transformative work in the world. And I, I, there's so much we could talk about, but I really want to focus on, on this specific book. And I think the best way to do that is for you, actually, to give us a thumbnail sketch of what the new book is about. And then I want to talk about two specific areas you write about. 
So if you're going to summarize the book for, for our listeners, what would you say? You know, I would say that as an activist and a humanitarian and someone who really wants to make the world a better place, I started my journey thinking I am going to change the world. And in the process, I worked with, you know, thousands of women and men in conflict areas and war zones and traveled the world and encountered all kinds of stories. And that journey led me to actually realize that I have to change myself first and that I can no longer just talk about my values from a righteous approach um, as an activist, but I really need to do the work myself. It's no longer enough to just preach these values. I have got to implement these values in my life and in my heart and understand how, how it works and then only from that understanding, I talk about it. Because when I implement it first in myself, I become more compassionate, more understanding, more patient as I uh, talk about it with others that I'm trying to convince of that own value. So the journey towards changing the self actually is essential before we can change the world. That's the summary. So let me ask you this. And I, I hadn't even thought of this until you were, you were talking. In less than a month, Spirituality and Health magazine is sponsoring a trip to Israel. And it's an interfaith trip. It's a small number of people. There's 30 people going, a couple of professors, myself and a friend of mine. And we're going to be focusing on what uh, I guess you might call the five Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Baha'i. And uh, I don't know if you want to call the Druze a separate tradition, but, but the Druze. So we're going to be looking at these different expressions of um, Abrahamic monotheism, I guess. And I'm just wondering, I mean, our, our trip is not political. It's, it's very focused on spirituality, a lot of contemplative practice. But if you were to offer advice to us, anyone actually, going into a place where there's so much conflict... Uh, how how might a tourist really use their time in a country like that to begin the process of self-change, self-transformation? You know, first of all, I wish I could join you in this trip. Sounds fascinating. Um, and you're going in a very critical time and a pivotal, important time in history. Um, and I would say I can only share with you what I've done. You know, and what I've done is not go and speak with Abrahamic religion leaders. I actually went through my life and talking with not only victims of rapes and torture, but over time I learned to actually also talk with executioners and the rapists themselves. And what I came to learn that when I go through, in a, whenever I went to any any interview, to any other, if you may, quote unquote, I always started with a preconceived notion of what that other stand for or what that other person mean and they believe and who they are. And some of these preconceived notions were positive and some of them were definitely very negative, my own prejudices and my own notions. And almost every single time, even with horrible people, 
I actually came out learning something new, something, a learning and an understanding that was different than my own preconceived notion. And the only way we can, so I come at it that we've got to go about ex- our exploration and understanding of the other. And of the other, it doesn't have to be in a different country, Rabbi. It could be in our own country, whoever we are afraid of here in America, right? Whenever I went about it and with genuine curiosity, with genuine attempt to try to understand their perspectives, even if I do not understand it or do not believe in it or do not agree with it and sometimes find it uh, appulsive, actually, uh, appalling. And so even if I do that, that then I want to understand, I need to be genuinely curious. And that's the only way I can hear the truth from the other person. And that's the only way I can then engage in a new way, in a way that goes beyond the blame and beyond us and them, but into how do we engage in a new paradigm of conversation, even if they are uncomfortable conversations, once I see you know, and, and hear the other's views from their own truthful perspective. I hope that makes sense and I hope that resonates, but that's, you know, it, it was a major shift in my attitude as I went about my travels and as I went about my understanding of others. It absolutely makes sense. And I'm glad you, you pointed out that it has nothing to do. It, it, it's not just about going to another country. It's, you know, people in your own backyard. Uh, what about the connection you know, you raise this notion of uh, boundless curiosity. I get the sense, and I'm asking what your thought is on this. There's a connection between this kind of uh, boundless curiosity and compassion. Do you see that? or what? I do. It's actually interesting. I mean, you're making me think of another Rami that I wrote about in Freedom is an Inside Job. And Rami is an Israeli father who lost his 13-year-old daughter in one of the bus uh, terrorist attacks in Israel. And he was devastated, angry, and the, the whole, obviously, the whole family were just devastated. And I interviewed him, you know, a few years ago, and he was like, I just was full of rage and anger against the Palestinians. And I was just like, why do they hate us so much? And he wanted to understand that hate. He wanted to understand what is the reason that would trigger someone to kill my innocent child, basically. And the way he describes how he went about it, you know, he could have he could have easily chosen to go about it with anger and hate that engagement. Honestly, I don't know what would I do if my 13-year-old child gets killed in a terrorist attack. He decided with choice. And he's like, every day I wake up making that choice. Am I going to lead my life? Am I going to go about this strategy? tragedy with anger and hate or am I going about it with trying to understand and trying to have compassion and he's like every day is a choice so he goes and crosses the borders to the West Bank and start engaging with Palestinian families to try to understand what the, the reason behind the anger and the hate 
And he comes about it in a very different eye-opening experience. And as a result, he actually creates a coalition of families, bereaved family, and uh, who are Palestinians and Israelis. And as a result, they start dialogue and understanding and compassionate uh, conversations with each other. Uh, both sides have lost their children. And that's the sort of the anchoring. And so it's it's a choice we make, you know, it's a choice and it's a hard choice to engage in compassionate understanding. It is not easy. It is much easier to talk about it, to be honest, than to implement it, but it is possible. And it is definitely a choice that we each can make. And, you know, to give you another example of what I mean by I thought about these values, I mean, because there's so much talk about compassion these days, right? much harder to implement it, I find it, in, in our personal lives. I was one of those people who like loved the idea of forgiveness. I would give speeches about forgiveness and I would quote, quote Nelson Mandela, who I saw as my hero as he preached for forgiveness. And then, to be very honest, you know, someone that I loved dearly hurt me betrayed me, cheated on me, and just devastated me, like just broke my heart, shattered my heart. And and I was like, can I forgive him? And I couldn't. I actually really didn't want to forgive him. I was so furious and angry at the hurt that he caused me. And so I started questioning myself, like, well, what's the point of giving speeches about forgiveness and frankly, even reading books about forgiveness of how enemies forgive each other if I can't forgive this one man in my own life? And that's what forced me to look into understanding forgiveness, not as a terminology that is very fancy, like compassion, you know, very like it's it's wow, it's nice term, but really, can I understand forgiveness in myself? And I had to find that part of myself that had betrayed me to understand how I, where betrayal is. And I had to actually have compassion and pity even for that part of me that betrayed me. And then to, to go into a point of forgiveness to that insecure part of me that betrayed me in order for me to understand, to forgive the other person right in front of me, the man who has hurt me, in order for me to understand forgiveness in the larger political realm and the in the larger political arena of forgiving the other the larger enemy in my life and our lives and all of that and so it's the same thing with compassion it's such a, a, a rosy word <laughs> easy to talk much harder to implement but it is possible and we need to start it with having compassion towards the part of ourselves that we are not so proud of and we're not so, you know, we're embarrassed of. And from there, we go into understanding that meaning. And from there, we understand how do we apply it as we engage with others. And the book deals with that quite, quite directly, I, I think. I mean, you call the book Freedom is an Inside Job owning our darkness and our light, so to heal ourselves and the world. So yeah, there, there's, it's a spectrum, I suppose, you know, dealing with the other in yourself as well as the, the other outside yourself. So I, I want to change direction a little bit and ask you to read part of the book. And there's a section in the book where you are in Sarajevo. And if you want to give a quick background about what took you there, that would be fine. But I'd really like you to read uh, your conversation uh, 
I'm not going to set it up for you because you, you'll do that for us. But, but this conversation with this woman about what she needs and what you can do to help. And I, I thought it was, I mean, it absolutely uh, caught me beautifully off guard. So Sarajevo was the second largest besieged, the second, second longest besieged city in modern history. Um, they were besieged for four years uh, where they were cut off from the world, actually, and food and water and, and everything, you know, um, by Serbian soldiers who surrounded the city. And so it was a humanitarian crisis in the early 90s, and that's what launched my my humanitarian journey. That's why I started Women for Women International. I was 23 years old. I was, you know, determined, again, to go and help. And it was not easy to enter Sarajevo. You had to, like, really go with UN troops. I was the only women in a plane full of UN soldiers. I'm scared. You have to go through, you know, uh, insecure checkpoints. As a woman, there was so much rape. There were concentration camps, rape camps in, in Bosnia held by Serbian uh, uh, troops. And no one was protected, not even if I was in a UN car. So it's, it's, it was a dangerous journey, but here I am, a young woman determined to help women in, in Bosnia and help them get what they want. So I, I go to the city and, and here I'm going to start uh, my, my description of it. And in spite of the danger, I was able to meet with several women's organizations to distribute the funds I had raised for them. I was excited to meet them and hear about their needs and realities and to think about how to help them better. I asked them what else I could bring besides clothes and money. I had in mind vitamins, tampons, bandages, and other practical items. Lipstick, the first woman said. We want lipstick. Lipstick? What? I had taken, I was taken back. Why would they want lipstick? They had so many more urgent needs. Lipstick is the smallest thing I can put on and feel beautiful, the woman told me. I want that sniper to know that he is killing a beautiful woman. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Resistance comes in different ways. Some fight back with guns. Some fight back by keeping the music playing, like the Bosnian cellist who played in the middle of an open square where snipers could easily shoot him. Some fight back with art, like the artist who turned empty bullet castings, castings into pieces of art. 
this woman was fighting back by keeping beauty alive. Putting on lipstick was the simplest way to feel beautiful and connected to life itself. It's how she could triumph over the humiliation of being starved and possibly killed by an unseen gunman. It suddenly hit me. To deny women their sense of beauty would be to violate their dignity and integrity. Even if they were suffering shortage of food and water, even if they lacked basic hygiene, even if they were cold and afraid, they had every right to ask for cosmetics. These women were not just desperate victims. They wanted to live and die in dignity and to choose their circumstances. That is, I mean, it's a very powerful statement. And let me just give you some, uh, one of the things that struck me about it and then ask you to, to comment. So when I read this, it reminded me of, uh, I don't know, we call it a story. It was anecdotal. Certainly it's in a, a book on women's experience, Jewish women's experience in the death camps during the, you know, the Nazi Holocaust. And one of the things that they talk about in that book is the women, uh, women made an extreme effort to keep one another's faces clean. It was how they fought to maintain their dignity. And I, I, I read this as an, as an example of the same thing. What is it, do you think, about beauty that directly leads to dignity? It's a beautiful question, Rabbi. Thank you. You know, it's interesting because beauty in, in, in here, for example, has been so commercialized and we talk about beauty a lot and plastic surgeries and makeup and cosmetics and all of these things. And we sort of forget, I did, you know, that the essence of beauty, it is, you know, it's the essence of beauty. So we, we start like sort of compiling beauty upon us without understanding how it comes and its its role, you know? So as a feminist, for example, I denied beauty because I wanted to be taken seriously for my mind. And here I go to women in war who have nothing and they were saying, we need beauty. And they taught me beauty. They actually taught me not only how to put some makeup on, but how to dance in Rwanda, even though they have lost, you know, a million people in a hundred days. They have taught me how to sing in Congo, even though... The, the, the massacres and mass rapes still happening right now in Congo as we speak. So it is about, it's, it keeps the human spirit alive. It keeps the human spirit alive. And it is not a commercial one. It is, people, when I, what I learned in wars, people look at fine beauty in the smallest of things. In Afghanistan, where we only know it about war, try to enter the poorest person's home and you see beauty inside. And so it becomes our acts of resilience to keep our spirit alive, our sense of self that we, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like it drives me crazy, even as a humanitarian myself, that the only way you can raise or the primary way you can raise money here for, for humanitarian causes is if you actually show images of poor people, poor kids, or poor women with flies still flying on their face, right? And right. it's like, because that's what triggers the donations. And I'm like, that is true, but it's not the only truth. The truth is also people clean their faces and they want to have the nice clothes on and the big, even though they have nothing. 
And we cannot judge, you know, how they look by their needs. You know, it's it's because it's how they're. Like, well, let me. I mean, let me give you actually a very tangible story to answer your question. A woman in Bosnia, her name was Zainaba, and so I remember. Obviously, I paid attention to her because her name is similar to mine. And she came, and you know, she like she had just survived concentration camp with her husband. He was so heavily beaten that he was handicapped. And she came to our center, to Women for Women Center, and she said, I just want to buy jeans, a pair of jeans for my son, teenage son. And I was very judgmental of her. I was like, a pair of jeans? Like, really, who cares about a pair of jeans? You're like, you're, your husband is torture. You're sleeping on cardboards. You know, you don't have food. We need to get you going here, woman. Like, you know, who cares about the pair of jeans? And she looked at me and she said, I am petrified that if I don't provide my teenage son this pair of jeans, he may steal one. And I don't want to fail him as a mother. So, yes, I don't have food, and yes, we do not have best to sleep on, but that pair of jeans is more important than anything else. And so, what I'm, it's, it's a long way to go about saying we cannot judge what poverty is or what needs is, and we underestimate the importance of dignity and, and beauty in, in what people need in the midst of crisis. And we have to respect that that's part of the way they resist, and that's part of resilience. I absolutely agree with that. I'm wondering if, you know, when they, you know, we see these these um, various charities showing these people, babies, little kids, adults, in these hor- horrible situations, harrowing situations, and they they play up the suffering, but do it in such a way, I, this should, I'm making it a statement, this should be a question, but it seems to me they do it in such a way that actually robs the people of dignity. They're trying to show you people who have lost dignity and somehow that's supposed to trigger the heartstrings and then, you know, we open up our purse strings. Yep, I completely agree with you. I met an Afghan woman once and she had like nice clothes on. She was not in burqa. She her, she was not covering her hair. She has some light makeup on and she said, and every time, by the way, I, I was one of these judgmental people. I mean, I would go, I was like, I don't know, she needs help. She looks pretty for me. She looks put together for me. And, you know, and I would go and visit these women. And I would see that they're living in utter, sh- I mean, horrible poverty. It's just when they left their home, they put the best, you know, they have. They put it all together to, with for their dignity. And yet when she came to humanitarian organizations, people dismissed her because she did not fulfill our stereotype of what poverty meant and so she one day she she cried you know collapsed and sat crying and she says i don't know what to do i try to get jobs they tell me no you're an afghan you're a poor woman i try to get humanitarian aid they tell me i don't look poor so she's like come to my home and see who i am and when you go and you see utter poverty and so the, the problem, you know, there is a saying that we see things as we are. We do not see things as they are. And this entire book, my whole appeal, is how do we see things as they are? And that means seeing ourselves as we are, not only as good. I mean, if you interviewed me at 10 years ago, I would only tell you about the good parts of me. I would not tell you about all the insecure, bad parts of me, you know. But now I'm saying we. I need to see me fully so I I can see the other fully so I can see the holistic identity of the other in their good and bad. And I can only do that if I see the good and the bad in me. Mm. 
Very powerful. And and you do that, I think, throughout the book. We are running up against the clock here. And I'm going to do something that, you know, I probably should not do. And that is ask you this huge question and then tell you we've got two minutes to do it in. So let's let's go see what what happens. And, uh, you know, take take whatever time you need, knowing that I am going to have to, you know, cut to a commercial. But you're talking to someone in Mosul, to a woman in Mosul, and she starts uh, telling you that she said, I'm just going to read from the book. She says, a woman sweeping her street said, and I'm quoting from this woman from your book, I will clean the rebel from my house. I will fix the windows and the doors after all this destruction. I can do it myself. I just need help articulating a new value system. And then at the very end of the book, you seem to agree with her. And you say, we need, this is now I'm quoting you in the book, we need a new value system to take up into the future. So without asking you to be definitive, can you give us some, what what do you think that might be in, in, you know, two minutes? Well, I can't decide what is the new value system, but I can tell you the context and why do I agree with it. So the people in Mosul, and this was, I went last year, two weeks after ISIS was finally defeated and overthrown. And people in Mosul are saying, and I think their voice is very important. I call it a message from the abyss, basically, because they're saying, look, we bought into those who use religion fundamentalists. We bought into. We bought into divides. We bought into the oppression of women. We bought into sectarian war and a religious war. We bought into all of it. And we became the nuclear bomb on ourselves. That the nuclear bomb was not thrown from some unseen plane. We are our nuclear bomb. We are the ones who destroyed ourselves. And their call out, this is, I mean, the city is just completely destroyed, mind you. They're coming out with this voice, a call out for, please, we need to shape a new value system for what does it mean to be, in their words, a new human being. Now, I come and and I live in America and I live in New York and I see a time of fear and a division and blame and we're shouting at each other these days, right? And for me to tell you this should be the new value system would be, again, doing what I'm saying don't do, which is preaching out of a righteous approach. What I'm saying is I don't know what these new value systems, but if we each walk our own journey of truth, If we each do our work on what is truthful for us, and and that means holistic, it means that we actually live a truthful life, no longer in lies, whether it is in our buying habits or in our relationships. If we each do the work on ourselves, the world shall realign itself. Our economy, our politics, our communities will realign itself around us, our own. And together, we will come out with the new value systems that are based not because the people of Mosul got destroyed, but because we have a new technology, we have a division, a time of division and fear, we have the rise of of of, uh, of people that we're afraid of, you know, of, um, you know, we have uh, of racism and all of these things. And so I can't tell you what they are, but I can tell you if we each do our work on ourselves, Together, we will come up with these value systems, and we do need a new value systems to replace a time of fear and a division in this time. Wow. We, we are up against the clock. I just want to offer one observation. I think your book does more than 
I think you actually do present us with some concrete things regarding a new value system. I think you've mentioned them uh, in this conversation. I think you're, you're talking about a value system that's rooted in, though not exclusively just limited to, but rooted in curiosity, compassion, both of which should be in service to the dignity of both, I would imagine, both you know, humans, persons, and, and also the planet. So I think you, you really have set us on, in the right direction for this. And May add, you know, if I'm to summarize it, is a value system where it is based on living our truth, being mm-hmm. in our truth and speaking our truth. In a time where fake news and post-truth era, we do need to make truth great again. And that only means that we need to walk our own journey of truth in our personal lives and political lives and economic lives. Fabulous. Our guest today was Zainab Salbi. She's the author of Freedom is an Inside Job, Owning Our Darkness and Our Light to Heal Ourselves and the World. An interview with Zainab and an excerpt from her new book appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. For more information on her work, please visit her website, ZainabSalbi.com. So, Zainab, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. What a pleasure to be in conversation with you, Rabbi. Thank you. And thank you. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holyland hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.